Jesus truly was a subversive. We surveyed the Gospel of Luke. Um, uh, you'll know if you've been here for the last few weeks at relatively high speed, portraying him um, from Luke's perspective as a revolutionary, God's revolutionary. Most particularly, we've seen that Jesus is bringing about a revolution in which the humble are lifted up and the proud are put down. He devoted himself, um, we saw in Luke chapter 4, to preaching good news to the poor for uh, releasing captives and so on. Um, Because he was about um, creating a revolution. A revolution in which... um, uh, those who are poor before him actually find they are rich and those who think that they are uh, are wealthy and have no need of him actually go away hungry. He also called his followers, do you remember, to be like him, to love our enemies, to be non-judgmental. It was extraordinary revolutionary stuff. Not a revolution of guns and armies, but a revolution of love and self-sacrifice. Culminating, he said, with those those words, whoever wants to follow me must take up his cross daily. But Jesus knows people who hear his message will often not let it penetrate their hearts. They will either respond with a spasm of enthusiasm followed by a lifetime of apathy or they will just reject his call altogether or perhaps worse still they will persuade themselves that they're actually following him when in reality their hearts are far from him. He knows that in order to achieve this revolution he must be a true subversive. He cannot conquer hearts with a full frontal attack. Our defences are just too strong. He must engage in guerrilla warfare with the human heart. He must smuggle his weapons in past the guards before he can begin to do his devastating work. And his particular mission impossible needs more skill than Tom Cruise ever had. So he needs a particularly skillful weapon. Parables. Parables are Jesus' concealed weapons in his revolutionary war. Actually, our our culture, which is vaguely familiar with Jesus' teaching and with parables in particular, needs that even more. When we read the story of the Good Samaritan, for instance, I, I fear most of the time its message barely penetrates. We see it as a message about loving other people, which frankly Jesus has been talking about um, all along and uh, our consciences are pretty comfortably hardened by long exposures to, uh, um, uh, to such messages and so we go away grateful for the reminder or bored or relatively cynically detached or uh, comfortable and self-satisfied that we're doing fine. Thank you very much. But this parable is not for that purpose. This parable is the hand grenade that Jesus smuggles in before he explodes it in our hearts. And I want us to see that this morning. 
I want us to let it speak to us as it was intended to speak to his first hearers. But first of all, we must uh, um, <coughs> introduce ourselves to a key character. He, he is called an expert in the law in uh, verse 25. And we're going to see what this expert, even before Jesus starts telling his story, reveals about himself. He's obviously not yet a follower of Jesus. He comes to Jesus to test him, we're told, again in verse verse 25. Um, He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, as often is characteristic of him, asks uh, back a question to this man, verse 27. Uh, how do you read the law? He says, verse 26, verse 27. um, This expert in the law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. A wonderful summary of all that God requires us as it it is found in the Old Testament. It was often quoted by the rabbis of Jesus' day. This expert in the law is a spiritual model for us. If he was at university, I'm sure he would be uh, um, uh, nominated to be president of whatever came before CUs existed. As he grew older, certainly this man would have been um, uh, loved and appreciated in the synagogues for his preaching gifts. His house group would have counted themselves fortunate that such a, such a sharp-minded leader was, uh, was amongst them, able to summarise all that um, woolly, woolly discussion that had happened in the evening. A great chap to have in your church. But Jesus begins to expose the heart of this expert in the law with a terse but um, deeply penetrating response. Verse 28, You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. This is the point. Will the expert get out of his armchair? And then as Luke goes on telling the story, we actually see two marks of a deeply flawed character, two marks that demonstrate he is actually a hypocrite, this man. The first is the mark of self-justification. Verse 29 but he wanted to justify himself, Luke says. There's a real irony in this. Anyone like Luke who knows the rest of the New Testament or knows particularly the teachings of the Apostle Paul, Luke had been his companion for years, will know, as Paul had taught so clearly, that no one can justify himself. No one can actually live a life that on its own makes us right with God. There is no use protesting our innocent. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, said the Apostle Paul. And uh, so Luke must have that in his mind as he describes this man's activity as he wanted to justify himself. But frankly, actually... His actions are not so far from ours, are they? We are chronic self-justifiers. We are people who endemically build up the case for why we've behaved okay in whatever situation. Why our life deserves to be applauded. 
It's not so bad being an expert. Being an expert actually requires a lot of time in the armchair. Make sure you get it right. He wanted to justify himself. The second mark of his hypocrisy is what you could call the mark of limitation. This is what he says, verse 29, he wanted to justify and so he said, who is my neighbour? This expert, you see, reads his Bible like W.C. Fields once said he read his Bible, looking for loopholes. And he thinks he's found one. Ah, it says love your neighbour. In other words, there are people who perhaps aren't our neighbours, Jesus. Surely there are some people who I don't owe love to. But that is not a loophole that Jesus will let him get through. No, his answer has exposed his hypocrisy. But then Jesus tells him this story. We're going to spend most of our time looking at what Jesus reveals now to this man who has inadvertently displayed his heart to us. The first thing that Jesus reveals, and the most obvious, is what I'm sure we saw when we uh, read the story. There is a great challenge in this story. Jesus tells this story of a man, an ordinary Jew, who travels the notoriously dangerous road from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he is robbed and left to die. A priest comes along. Priests were rich. Many of them had second homes actually in Jericho which was away from all the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem. So it was common uh, for them to travel backwards and forwards. And this rich religious man avoids any responsibility. Passes by on the other side. A a Levite, another wealthy, privileged person involved with the, uh, uh, the temple, he does the same. But then this Samaritan is so very different in, in the story, isn't he? Um, look at what it says. A Samaritan, verse 33, as he travelled, came where the man was. When he saw him, he took pity on him, we see. Now, Samaritans had a very difficult relationship with Jews. Both groups considered each other with with traditional hostility and it had often boiled over into violence. But this Samaritan actually not only has pity on this Jew, he does everything for him. He medicates and soothes his uh, and bandages his wounds. He puts this man, uh, we see in... um, and verse 34, on his own donkey. So he has to walk while the other man is, uh, is carried to the nearest inn. He takes him to this inn where, because there are no hospitals and makes sure he has a bed for the night. He pays for the man's keep. He promises that he will pay even more if necessary. This is a vivid picture that Jesus gives us of the sort of love that Jesus expects us to have. Actually, if you look at the New Testament, it has to be said that the main emphasis 
for the way that Christians are to express their love is love for one another amongst the community of God. But Jesus here and a few places elsewhere makes it very, very clear, clear that that Christian love must overflow. Remember we saw a few weeks ago, we must love our enemies. So here is a concrete example of someone loving his enemy. And Jesus says, using this story, true Christian love is courageous. Who knows what bandits were still, a, still around, but this Samaritan stops and takes care of the man. True Christian love is time-consuming. The Samaritan attends to him, the Samaritan walks with him, the Samaritan takes him to an inn. And true Christian love, says Jesus, is costly. The Samaritan pays all the man's expenses and indeed offers to make sure that he, uh, uh, he pays for any future expenses that are incurred. And true Christian love does not discriminate. A Samaritan takes pity on a Jew. That's why as a church here, we've set up, for instance, the Comfort Trust to help us to exercise precisely that kind of love in East Oxford. And frankly, it's early days yet, but I'm praying that the Trust will grow in strength and influence and will have the opportunity then to express that, that, that the love that the Samaritan has for uh, our areas in various ways just informally as a church as well we have regular contact with people who are in trouble and Christian life, love does not shut them out must not shut them out even though sometimes it takes courage often it takes time sometimes it takes resources Notice actually too that uh, this love is not contingent on the, on the people becoming Christians. We long for people whom we care for to become Christians. We cannot help but tell people the gospel as well as caring for them because it is part of our care. But we cannot actually make our love, our care entirely contingent upon them responding in that way. What do we do as individuals? What do you do as an individual? Do you love like this Samaritan? Or are you more like the priest and the Levite who passed by on the other side than you'd like to think? That's the first thing that Jesus teaches us. He gives us a challenge. But I'm afraid, you see, that that, that challenge doesn't get past our defences very easily. Because we're used to dealing with challenges like that. The answers for why our commitment is not perhaps quite as Jesus would want it are very readily on our lips. Well, Jesus will forgive me. Well, that's not my calling. Well, sometime at another time of my life I might be able to do more. Those answers are there. But I have to say to you, Jesus has already got the hand grenade behind your defences. 
Let me let it go off. It's not just a challenge. This is a rebuke. Because the story Jesus is telling is all about a Samaritan doing these things. It wasn't just that there was tension between Jews and Samaritans. Samaritans had a very defective faith. Samaritans were hated and actually despised by the Jews because they followed a sort of rehashed and distorted version of the Jewish law which was far, far from being the uh, true Jewish law that you and I read in our Old Testaments. In Jewish eyes they were they were monsters, actually greater monsters often than out-and-out pagans. They were chimeras, they were illegitimate descendants of Moses, they were bastards. And uh, the story that Jesus should have told, you see, was distinctly different. He should have told the story about a Samaritan getting robbed, a priest and a Levite passing by on the other side. Ordinary Jewish people were um, loved anti-priest stories. There were lots of them in their um, uh, in their repertoire. Um, but uh, then an ordinary Jew came along and he was the hero of the moment and he saved this despised, despicable, pathetic little Samaritan and uh, put him into a hotel and an inn and showed what true love was all all about. But Jesus doesn't do that. He turns the story around. Jesus says this despised, despicable, pathetic little Samaritan Is the one who shows us how to live. In fact, he turns the question around. Who is my neighbour? said uh, the expert in the law. And again, to answer that question, Jesus should have made the Samaritan the victim and a uh, nice Jew who uh, cares for, for the Samaritans. And there is the message clear and straightforward, you should even care for these people who are beyond the limits. But he hasn't done this, and he doesn't reply in that way. Do you see, in verse 36, which of these three, priest, Levite or Samaritan, do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? In other words, who was being neighbourly? Not who was an appropriate recipient of your care. The true power of this, uh, this um, uh, parable, you see, is that it stands as a shocking, stunning rebuke to experts in the law and onlookers as well, who are perhaps doing their best. That Samaritans, even, are doing better. Let, let me put it in. Let me transcribe it to a few modern situations and let you feel the feel the, feel the power of it. Perhaps it's about a Muslim actually who helps a white person while church members pass by. Now, do you feel the protest rising in your heart? It just doesn't happen. You protest. It's great in a story. 
But Samaritans don't help Jews and Muslims don't help Christians. Let me tell you, it does happen. I could tell you about the Muslim family who befriended and cared for a regular church attender here. I could tell you about the Muslim family who were engaged alongside a, a church family here in, uh, in lots and lots of acts of care in the street in East Oxford. The church family's gone now. I wonder who's doing the care in that street. I can guess. Or perhaps a story about a, um, a liberal Christian um, who denies the virgin birth, denies the resurrection, denies even that Jesus died for our sins on the cross. A story about him helping a, a good evangelical believer. Can you, can you feel the protest rising in your heart here? This is a slightly different protest. No, you say to, we say to ourselves, yeah, but I've got the truth. Whatever, whatever good that person does, that won't atone for the fact that they have rejected Jesus as their, uh, as their true saviour. They've rejected the truth about Jesus. Um, Jesus says, but I'm saying something else. I'm saying, says Jesus, learn from him. Verse 37, um, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Heretical church leaders sometimes are putting believing Christians to shame. On this Remembrance Sunday, for instance, we must acknowledge it has been the liberals very often who have been most vocal in questioning our Western love of uh, violence to sort out the world's problems. A generation ago, it was the liberals who were the most vocal in questioning the, the wisdom of atomic um, uh, warfare. Are we feeling shamed? Or perhaps uh, for a Western audience, this could be the story of an ignorant Christian peasant in a third world country from a distinctly dodgy church that barely knows one end of the Bible from the other who helps a neighbour. I, I, I commonly hear people saying that... Um, the church in Africa or China or South America is a thousand miles wide but a millimetre deep or whatever. I, you've heard it if you've been around in Christian circles and I'm sure there's a lot of truth in that. People often mean only though that those churches don't have a rich, deep theological knowledge such as we Western churches do. But you see, those, those Christians there in those humble, dodgy churches are giving away their last meal to their friend, are giving away their shirt sometimes to a person in need, are risking their lives to help others. Actually, the first pastor of this church it's it, it said that he once gave away his shoes to help a poor family in East Oxford. 
And I'll accept that we, as a church, are deep as Christians and they are shallow when I see us living like that. Story got past your defences? Has it exploded really? Because it must. That is what Jesus wants it, wants it to do. It must do that. It must break down our hard hearts and help us to see what Jesus wants us to see. that love cannot be limited and that we should be ashamed of ourselves if we want to justify ourselves, if we ask limiting questions to who is my neighbour. Now that story and actually what um, I see Jesus calling us to again and again has uh, massively impacted me over the last few years. It has made me see that so much of what um, passes as real Christian discipleship is hopelessly superficial though we may be rich in Bible understanding, hopelessly half-hearted and hopelessly self-satisfied. And I came then back to this story knowing that my heart would be touched again, longing for our hearts to be touched as well but also deeply aware of something very real that happens to people who are soft-hearted towards these stories. And some of you know at least a proportion of the uh, um, pastoral burdens that we as a church do already bear behind the scenes as a church. And, and, And let me say, it is a lot more than you might immediately be aware of and let me say too that there is an ocean of need out there in our society at the moment frankly our society British society is from an earthquake that began 60 years uh, probably not that long actually 40 years ago is now inheriting a tsunami which is swamping um, medical services, swamping social services, swamping uh, the police very often, swamping whole communities. And as a church and churches, we are going to have to learn to deal with a world that is much more needy than perhaps it was a generation or two generations ago. And certainly in myself, I have begun to feel the cost of that. 
And some of you know, uh, to be honest, in the last year I've, there have been moments when I've been close to emotional exhaustion with some of the, uh, the issues that we have been dealing with and the massively difficult decisions that we have to face again and again. The balance between exercising love and justice, generosity and wisdom, forgiveness and discipline. Those things are really costly and really difficult and really hard work. And if God has actually blown away some of those defences in your heart this morning, if you have felt the power that Jesus wanted that story to have, then there is a danger for you. A danger that you will just become, frankly, exhausted. And I came to this passage and suddenly noticed something that Luke does for us. We've seen what uh, that expert has revealed about himself. We've seen what Jesus reveals. A profound rebuke. But I want to show you what Luke reveals to us. And I think he has done it consciously relieved to say some of the commentators do as well, in order to help us to see what, how we can live like this. Straight after this um, um, strong statement that uh, we must go and do likewise. Prompted, remember, from the question, what must I do to inherit this uh, uh, eternal life? Luke tells us the story of Martha and Mary in chapters 38 to, uh, verses 38 to 42. And that story is about something quite different. It is about the importance of the word of God or actually the word of Jesus. Two sisters, Martha and Mary, do opposite things. Martha is mis- busy doing while Mary just sits and listens. And if if they've heard the parable of the Good Samaritan, then Martha has every reason to complain that Mary's not doing anything. Jesus' answer, therefore, is a great surprise. Verse 41, Martha, Martha, the Lord, Lord answered, are you worried and upset about many things? One thing only is needed. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. One thing only is needed, says Jesus. Stop fretting and listen to my words. Listen to the word of God. Without that all your activity is useless. Don't walk out of this place, says Luke, as a Martha. Because you will become agitated, you will fret, you will become irritated with other people who haven't seen the uh, power of the uh, Good Samaritan parable as you have. Walk out of this place as a Mary who is determined that all your actions, all the things that you do come because your basic stance as a believer is to sit at Jesus' feet and listen. One thing is necessary. It is not an excuse to go back 
to that stance of the expert in the law. But it is a warning that Christian doing comes from Christian listening and from nowhere else. That's why I shut myself away um, and to, to study the, uh, uh, the Bible, to absorb it and to try to teach it to you in, uh, in ways that, 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 that really get to our hearts. Because it is no substitute. We would not be doing God's will to abandon um, preaching sermons and to get out there and do good things for the community around. A central activity which empowers and guides and strengthens and sustains our life in this world is hearing the word of Jesus, hearing the word of God. One thing is necessary. And then I think it is no accident that immediately after that in the first uh, 11 verses of, uh, of chapter 11, Luke records that the uh, disciples were fascinated by Jesus' prayer life. This man who got up early, first thing in the morning, and tramped out into the wilderness to get away from people and to pray alone to God. This man who sometimes prayed all night. And they say, teach us to pray. And Jesus reassures them, amongst other things, that if they pray and if they ask God to help them they will not be disappointed with what they get. Which of your, uh, verse 11, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish will give him a snake instead or if he asks for an egg will give him a scorpion? Scorpion, You then though you are evil, if you know how to good, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Christian activity will become a burden and a trial and a disappointment and lead to fretting and disappointment and uh, bitterness if we are not underpinning it with prayer. And if we do pray, then what God gives us to do He will also give us the power to do by his Holy Spirit. He will give us his Spirit to those who ask. What God gives us to do will turn out to be a good thing, both in our lives and the lives around, because he doesn't give bad things to his children who ask him. So will we pray? Our prayer meeting, to be frank, is not well attended. Our monthly first Tuesday meeting. Plenty of prayer happens in house groups. But I wonder whether we are a prayerful community. If we are not, then the truth is that we will run round like headless chickens and either sink into the apathy of someone who says, I can't do it all so I won't do anything. 
of a self-righteousness, of someone, of, uh, of someone who says, I've done it right and I've done it well. And God deserves to honour me. Or the fretting of someone who knows that they can never do enough. And he's constantly agonising over what more they can do. Luke tells us the word of God and prayer will guide and direct and enrich a life of love. The question is, will we allow Jesus to get into our hearts Will we go away to wrestle with God's word and pray and live lives like the Good Samaritan?